Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you for allowing me to come and be with you and spend this weekend. Already, uh, I've just gotten a lot just fellowshipping with you at Mass, at dinner, prayerfully, hopefully, during these talks. Uh, we'll get to know each other better, but more importantly, we'll get to know our Lord better. What I want you to take away from all of what I'm going to cram down your throats this weekend, and I'm going to let loose the fire hose, is I want you to see purpose. I want you to see that your Lord loves you so much that at the dawn of time, he set this up for you. I want you to read scripture from the heart of the church with purpose and intention. I want you to hear the love letter. And so to do that, we're going to examine the question, why the cross? I mean, he's God. Redeem me with a thought. Why do you have to be nailed to a tree? Beaten, mocked, scourged, have his flesh torn from his body. Why all of that just for me, for you? He loves you enough just to forgive you if he wants to. So if he went through all of that, there must have been a pretty mighty reason. Redemption is a mighty reason, but he has so much more in store for all of us. That's what I hope to accomplish. We'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit as to whether or not that actually gets done. Before we really kick off, I can tell you that leading up to this week, it's been a lot of challenges for me and my, for my family. And I wasn't sure whether or not things were all going to work out. But God sent me lots of signs. Especially I went to confession a week ago tonight. And the confessor gave me penance that just spoke right to my heart. And then just coming here, just little subtle signs of the first trip from Houston to Salt Lake City. I, I get my seat. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I got the bag stowed. I've got my stuff out. I'm ready to go. Nobody's sitting next to me. This is going to rock. <laughs> then the biggest guy, <laughs> bigger than me, comes lumbering down the aisle. Excuse me, sir. That's my seat. Uh, okay. So you can imagine... We're doing this the entire, yeah, you okay? I'm good, yeah. It just so happens that this guy's not Catholic. He's a, he's a, uh, a Christian, a musician, and he was wanting to know what I was doing. You know, he saw I had my Bible out. And, what are you doing? Where are you going? Going to a men's retreat in Wyoming. What, are you a pastor? Oh, no, I'm a Catholic lay evangelist. Huh. That's all I got out of him. <laughs> I thought, that was close. <sighs> okay, thank you. So he takes a nap, and I'm thinking, this is great. So I get out my stuff, and I'm reviewing my, my talk. And then he wakes up. Uh, so, so what are you going to talk on there? Salvation history. I'm going to reflect on the covenant mediators and, and their pros and their cons and allow what their faults, uh, what uh, faults they committed to to permeate in our own lives today and, and so we can reflect on those and, and make a better tomorrow. Well, can you give me an example of that? And so I started going into it. I started asking questions. So I laid out my best apologetic for the Catholic Church. I went 40 minutes. I went all through salvation history, all through the sacraments, into the early church fathers. At the end of all that, he said, that was entertaining. 
<laughs> I thought, ooh, that's not what a lay evangelist wants to hear. I want to be the jackass of Christ. Which means that if you're going to get anything out of this, you can rest assured that it's got nothing to do with me. And so when you desire to be used by God, be careful what you ask for. Because I can't convert anybody. I can't move the heart and the soul of anyone. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. I had a great exchange with that man today. A beautiful Christian, brother in Christ. I was glad that I got to at least rehearse my talk. <laughs> and hopefully, for the first time in his life, he heard a Catholic give a reasonable defense for what the church teaches. That's the, that's the most I could hope for. The Holy Spirit is responsible for everything else. All right, so before I waste all the rest of my time in the talk, let us begin. Let's say a quick prayer about what we're hoping to do today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we come before you, brothers in Christ. We stand before you humbly, knowing that we can't do anything, but you can do everything. And so we just trust in you. And I ask you, Holy Father, to send forth your Holy Spirit upon us all, to give us the words that will permeate our heart, to take away these hearts of stone, and give us hearts of flesh, that we might love you more deeply, that we might see you in the revelation that you have given to us. And we pray and ask that our Father be with us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 338 says, Nothing exists that does not owe its existence to God the Creator. The world began when God's Word drew it out of nothingness. All existent beings, all of nature, and all human history are rooted in this primordial event, the very genesis by which the world was constituted and time begun. Brothers in Christ, if you read nothing else of sacred scripture, read the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. You will have read all of salvation history. It's all in those first three chapters. Christ saving the world, the church, the sacraments, all of it in the first three chapters. It's beautiful. It's purpose-driven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Right at the very beginning, in just these few verses, we already see dramatic, dramatic changes in creation. Purpose, 
already at the very beginning. There are two major problems that God has to solve. The creation is without form and it is void. These set the stage. There are two realms. There's two things. There's the buckets and there's the things that fill the buckets. And God goes about taking care and solving these two problems. But notice also the key players, because it's very important. You already have seen the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? It's hovering over what? Over the waters of creation. And God speaks. This word comes forth. And what happens? Light separates the light from the darkness. We're going to see that come back in a very powerful way here in just a moment. So the earth is formless and it's covered with the murky waters. And the earth has no rulers to inhabit the land, the sea, and the sky. So God goes about fixing these two problems. In verses 3 and 5, or 3 through 5, it's day one of creation. We see day and night come into existence. Verses 6 through 8, day two, the sea and the sky. Verses 9 through 13, land and vegetation. Notice what is going on in the first three days. God is forming the buckets. The buckets are being formed in the first three days. Day and night, sea and sky, land and vegetation. Those are the realms. What comes next? The rulers that will inhabit those realms. What goes into the buckets? Verses 14 through 19 is day four. The sun, the moon, and the stars. They rule over the day and the night. Verses 20 through 23. Birds and fish inhabit the heavens and the sea. Verses 24 through 31. Day six. Man and animals possess the land and eat the vegetation. God declares it all to be good. Remember that. It's all good. But the day is coming when God says it is not good. He manifests on the seventh day a covenant. What is covenant? Think about it. In our modern world, when we go out those doors, we get in our cars and we ride back to Casper. What do they say covenant is? They'll tell you covenant is the exchange of goods or services for the sake of economy. They'll say that your marriage is nothing more than a contract. That when one party defaults, you just break it. There's always a clause to get out. Is that a covenant? No. A covenant is the exchange of persons. I give to you all of me. I hold nothing back. And I take all of you to me. We become family. We become one flesh. It's a covenant bond. Why were covenants created? To create family. Family is at the foundation of all creation. Family is the building block of society. And as Father said at Mass, family is where the vocations come from. You want to build your church? Build your family. So at the seventh day... God forms a covenant with creation and man. And again, he declares it 
all good. Scott Hahn, one of my favorite theologians, he likes to say, contract is to covenant as prostitution is to marriage. Think about that. How profound that is. That's true. That's the difference between a contract and a covenant. Your covenant relationship with your spouse, your covenant relationship with your, with your God, they cannot be broken. When you married your spouse, you said, I do. You gave your word before God himself. What kind of man are you? How cheap is your word that you would break it off because it didn't work out? Because she doesn't treat me very good anymore. Because I don't love her. Love is a choice. Love is not an emotion. We don't feel love. We decide love. We choose love. God chose to love you eternally in spite of you. He chooses it even today. Thankfully, right? It's a choice. St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 27, quote, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Why is that? Why is Sabbath made for men? Because of covenant. Because God designed and desired for man to rest in him, in his covenant love. If man goes about the busyness of life, he gets distracted. All the noise of this world, even out here, In this beautiful landscape, we can hear the noise of the world. If you do not separate yourself from that, if you do not set yourself apart, you cannot rest in God's covenant love. Scott Hahn says, and a father who keeps his promises, quote, this is why God say God gave the Sabbath to his people and why they had to remember and keep it. For it was the sign of the covenant between God and creation that God's people were called to mediate. This role as covenant mediator involved two tasks, exercising royal dominion and attaining to priestly holiness. Our work and worship were thus meant to go hand in hand. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 347, quote, Creation was fashioned with a view to the Sabbath and therefore for the worship and adoration of God. You will only find your rest in God's covenant love. That is why we keep the Sabbath. Because without it, we are stuck in day six, never attaining to day seven. Who was created in day six? the beasts, and man. But who made it to day seven? Man. If you are stuck in day six, you are among the beasts. You are a perversion of what you were intended to be. Make it to day seven. Choose it. It's an act of the will. God created through a sevenfold sign. Seven, the Hebrew word is Shabbat. It is the very root word for covenant. Literally, it means to, to seven oneself. And so we see all through the Old Testament of covenants where people are sevening themselves. So the seven is a covenant sign. Remember that. Now, man is created in the image and likeness of God. Verses 1 
or chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. This is very important. Verse 26, quote, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God blesses them. And then he gives them sustenance, food. And he sends them on a mission. We're going to see that again. We'll see it in Melchizedek. We'll see it in David. We'll see it in Solomon. And we'll see it in Jesus Christ. Right here in the very first chapter of the Bible, the foundation for the salvation of all mankind is being laid. Adam and Eve created equal. Sent out because they're the image of God. Priest, prophet, and king. He is a king because he has dominion over creation. He is a prophet because as being the image of God, he is to take that image and spread it across the world. He is to go into the wilderness, cultivate it, tame the wilderness, and make it into the extended Garden of Eden for God. He is a prophet to the wilderness and to creation. We're going to see here in just one second how he becomes a priest. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now what's interesting about that is we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2 how God sees something that's not good. That's kind of curious. All of this goodness, creation is good. Man is good. All of a sudden in Genesis 2, we're going to see something is not good. That should jar you out of your seats. What in the world could God think is not good? Man is all alone. Now, paragraph 458 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, The Word became flesh so that thus we might know God's love. If I could rewrite Genesis chapter 2, I would have started with a quote from the New Testament. And if I were God and could write Genesis over again, I could do that. I could just go into the future, pluck it out, bring it back in time, and put it right there. And this is what I would put right in before Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Brothers in Christ, it's the law of love. It's the complete and total self-giving. It's laying yourself down for someone else. That is the greatest gift a man could give to someone else, especially to his covenant partner, his bride. Why is that important? Because we're going to see Adam doesn't get it. Adam misses the mark in a big way. The answer is found in the garden. The answer to why the cross is found right here in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, God is recognizing that everything is good in creation, except there's no man to cultivate the garden. So what does he do? 
he brings back the waters of creation through a rainfall and mixes the rain and the mud, the dust of the earth, to create a clay and forms Adam. Now that should be a peculiar image in your brain. Why? Remember that, that story in John's Gospel where our Lord encounters the blind man who was blind from birth and his disciples said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents, but so that the glory of God will be made manifest through this man. What does he do? He takes dust from the earth and he mixes it with his spittle and he rubs it on his eyes. And then he sends him to the pool of Shalom, which literally means sent for a baptismal washing. And he comes back with his sight. And then he gets questioned by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, who is this man that healed you? This man says something that's very profound in the gospel. He says, actually, I am. Ego eimi, the Greek words are the same words that our Lord used to call himself to Moses in the burning bush. Tell them, ego eimi sent you. Tell them, I am sent you. The man born blind comes out of the pool with sight and he becomes the I am. Why? Because in baptism, we die with Christ, we rise with Christ, and we become Christ. We are both ourselves with our concupiscent nature and we are Christ. This is foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 2 with the very creation of man appointing to the day when the sacrament of baptism will regenerate mankind through the mixing of this baptismal rainfall, if you will, a foreshadowing of the sacrament to come and the clay of the earth. And so he's given all this dominion over these, over these, uh, these animals. But he's also given some very specific, specific duties. God tells him that he can eat of every tree in the Garden of Eden. It's all good for food, with the exception of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree he cannot eat. On the day he eats it, he shall die the death. Our English translations merely say die. But in the original Hebrew, it actually repeats itself, die the death. That's very, very important. Adam's job in Genesis chapter 2 is told he is to keep and protect this garden sanctuary. The Hebrew words are abudah and shamar. We see these very same words being used elsewhere in Scripture to depict the Levitical priesthood, serving at the altar in the priestly sacrifice, protecting the tabernacle with swords, and even in the Jerusalem temple. The writer of Genesis, as tradition tells us Moses, is depicting Adam as a priest serving in the temple. What is the temple? It is the garden sanctuary where God dwells. The priest is adorned with all kinds of precious jewels. In the Garden of Eden, what do we see? Gold, stones. We see living waters of, of rivers. We see trees and fruits and animals. If you go back and look at how Solomon adorned the temple in the, in the book of 1 Kings, what did he use? Trees and fruits, cherubims on the walls, gold, stones. Even the high priest himself was adorned with all of these precious ornaments. 
The high priest had the name of God inscribed on the inside of his mitre that he wore on his forehead, the very name of God on his mind. Adam is depicted in the same way. He is a high priest serving in the garden sanctuary with God. And God says, it is not good that Adam should be alone. He needs to have an equal. So what happens? God sends them on a task. Let's name all of these animals. God sends the animals to Adam. Adam names them all, says those are going to be the names. And at the end of it, what happens? Adam realizes that amongst all of the created animals, not one is his equal. Didn't you say earlier that we're hanging between the angels and the beasts? How profound that is. Like the angels, you possess a rational intellect. Unlike the angels, you possess a body. Like the beast, you possess a body. Unlike the beast, you possess a rational intellect. You are special. You are very special. This is at the heart of why Satan fell from grace. How could God condescend and become like one of these creatures? Because he saw the future coming. So what, does, what happens? God places Adam in a very deep and profound sleep and opens his side and takes from his side a rib and then closes it and then fashions Eve from the side of Adam. Man is formed from dirt. Woman is formed from the side of man. Woman is the best of man. But she is taken from the side of man, not from his foot, that she should be his pedestal or his footstool, where he puts his feet on her, tramples upon her, and not from his head, that she should be placed on a pedestal and revered, but rather from his side, that she might be his equal. Man and woman are equal right from the very onset of time. And so on the seventh day, he wakes up, and what does he see? Woman. I mean, you can almost hear the exuberance in his, his voice. Woman! Do you see that? I mean, I've been hanging out with hairy monkeys all day, and that buffalo smells something fierce. That's woman! I mean, you can imagine the glory that he beheld in that moment. And he, yelled, he actually uses covenant language. Verse 23 of chapter 2. The man said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the culmination of the creation account, the pinnacle, the height, is the seventh day. It is the covenant Sabbath with God. It is the covenant relationship between man and woman. The very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 says, quote, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Ooh, what do you think that meant? They were one flesh. One flesh, naked, not ashamed. Do you think they were playing Yahtzee? Maybe she was baking a pie and he was out hoeing the yard. Maybe they were engaged in the most intimate act between a man and a woman, the one flesh union, the total giving of self 
one to the other. The most intimate moment between a man and his wife. The very next verse in Scripture. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature than the Lord God had made. When does Satan attack man and woman? At their most vulnerable point. Isn't that true today? I can't go to a grocery store and buy bread without having to fight for my immortal soul trying to avoid temptation at the checkout stand. I can't drive down the road without being inundated with a half-naked person trying to sell me a stick of bubble gum. Doesn't Satan attack us still today at our most vulnerable point? They were naked and unashamed. Just a few verses later, we're going to find out that they're naked and ashamed. What's changed? Before the fall, there was no chance that Adam would abuse his wife. There was no chance he would just look on her glorious body and then just use her as a commodity, like a Coke can, that when I'm done with it, I just crumple it up and I throw it away because she only serves to satisfy me. She is a daughter of the Most High God, born in the image and likeness of God. I dare not, I dare not use her and abuse her, not even in my most intimate thoughts. That's what John Paul II spoke about in Love and Responsibility. Before the fall, there was no chance of it. There was no, no sin, on his, no stain of sin on his soul. He would look upon his wife and behold her beauty, appreciate her beauty. But he would never lower her from her God-given dignity. After the fall, that all changes. The gloves are off. It's all done from there on out. And we struggle with it today. Brothers in Christ, I was raised on pornography. It took decades for me to get free. How many houses are being plagued right now because fathers are passing it on. What are we doing to protect our sons, our daughters? What kind of men are we? Do we allow Satan, the intruder? You are Adam. You stand in the garden of your home. You are to keep and protect. This serpent has intruded into your sanctuary. What are you doing about it? What did Adam do? The Hebrew word for serpent here is nahash. Now, just earlier, just about an hour ago, we found a snake crawling under an apple tree. We should have gone out there for this talk. A little garden snake. Isn't that what you think of when you read Genesis chapter 3, the garden snake? You see pictures of a little tiny snake dangling from a tree. Is that really what happened? Is that really the image the sacred writer intended to communicate to us? You see, Genesis, was, Genesis is never written to tell you how it happened. It's written to tell you why it happened. Forget about how. You want to know how? Read Job. Job is far more detailed on creation. Genesis is how. Or why. 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 Nahash does not mean garden snake. Literally, it means a serpent, a venomous reptile that can bite you. But how is it used 
In places like uh, the book of Numbers and the Psalms and, and Isaiah, it's used to describe Leviathan, a major monster. Let's fast forward to another scene, a garden scene between a new Adam and a new Eve and also a serpent, Revelation chapter 12. How is the serpent depicted there? A seven-headed dragon. Yeah, that's kind of like a garden snake. (laughs) A little bit. So imagine in your mind, you're Adam. God told you very specifically, your job is to keep and protect this garden. And on the day that you eat this fruit, you will die the death. You're at your most vulnerable point, the most intimate of embraces with your spouse. And then here comes the seven-headed dragon. So naturally, you spring up and you confront this beast and you wrap him in a headlock and you give him a nugget and then you kick him out of the garden. Well, that's not what Adam did. What did Adam do? He stood there, silent. He didn't utter one single word. He left his spouse to do all the talking. Imagine that. (laughs) That never happens. No. Mm -mm. Especially the car salesman. I always do the negotiating. Right. Um, So the serpent says, he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Number one. He's speaking plural here. The Hebrew word actually means something more like y'all. Did God say y'all? He's from Texas, by the way, the serpent. (laughs) Taught there, just saying. So he's speaking to both of them. Did God say that you shall not eat from any of the trees of the garden? Did God actually say they couldn't eat from any of the trees? No, God said you can eat from all the trees except for one. So already he's just subtly twisting it. Isn't that the way Satan works? Doesn't he just subtly twist things? Just just get you off by one degree. He doesn't need 10 degrees. He just needs one degree. He needs you to lose focus for one instant. That's it. And he can work with that. You give him an inch, he takes a mile. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice, Eve was not made when that command was given. So how did she get it? Through her husband. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves and together and made themselves aprons. Adam does not say a single word in defense of his spouse, of the garden sanctuary, and of his God. 
He doesn't defend against this giant intruder into the sanctuary of God who's blaspheming God. Have we ever seen that image in salvation history? Oh, wait a minute. Remember David and Goliath? The smallest of eight sons, the puny little shepherd boy, goes out to visit the mighty army of the people of God fighting the Philistines. And there's this giant out there beckoning any oncomers to take him on, blaspheming God. And of course, all of the brave men of God's army ran right out there to defend God. Uh, no, not a one. The tiny shepherd boy had to go do it for them. And you know what he said? He said, I'd be scared too. Because he is rather intimidating, but he blasphemed God. He deserves to pay, even if I have to die. If only Adam could have been like David, trusting God. Now, God dwelled in that garden. That's curious. God dwells in the garden. Yeah, seven-headed dragon. Hey, God. Hey, God, uh, we got visitors. <laughs> Little help? Not once. He didn't cry out not one single time to God. Just stands there, silent. What happens to the woman? The woman falls prey to what we call the threefold concupiscence. She sees that the fruit is pleasing to the eye, that it's, it's good, it tastes awesome, this beautiful delicious red apple. It's so shiny. Oh, and oh, it's so juicy. It tastes so good. And this tree, it makes one like God. It's the pride of life. It's the, the fleshly desire. And it's the lust of the eyes. The threefold concupiscence. But she had no one to protect her. She was left hanging cold by her husband. And so God comes walking in the cool of the day. Now the Hebrew word there is coal. Now this is a cool word. Not because it was translated cool or because it was translated into sound. But because when we see it used in other places like in Exodus chapter 19, God comes down on a mountain in fire. Whoa! And the people, because they're in sin, instead of going to visit their father because he beckoned them close to him, they back away. Interestingly enough, why are they in sin? Because they refuse to abstain from sexual relations. Sex is going to plague us, brothers in Christ. It always has. It always will. Chastity and purity is a choice, not an emotion. It's an act of the will. Choose it. So God comes with this massive wall. Think of Darth Vader in the movie Star Wars. You ever seen that movie? Remember that first scene where he, he captures Princess Leia? Dun, 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 dun. I mean, everywhere he goes, just this orchestra is playing for him. He must hide it in his cape or something or have a little MP3 player on his belt. But think of that. I felt ominous just watching that movie. Like, oh man, something big is happening. Imagine how Adam and Eve felt. Why is it scary when God comes? Are we scared when God comes in the Holy Eucharist? 
We are if we're living in sin. Why? He doesn't make a single sound. But we know it's him because he said so. And he is truth itself. Because as St. Paul said, that becomes the bread of death if you take it and you're living in mortal sin. But it is the bread of life for those who come into covenant relationship with him. So all those who are living in sin, when God comes, fear. They cower. What does Adam and Eve do? They hide in a bush. So here, in a garden, at the dawn of time, Adam, the man and his wife, are naked and ashamed because for the first time, Adam can now abuse his wife by lowering her dignity down to nothing more than a mere commodity for self-pleasure. So she has to protect herself. She can't allow herself to be, to be raped of her dignity. And Adam must protect himself because he cannot allow himself to abuse her or himself. He must protect both of them by averting their eyes and covering their nakedness. They are in shame. And because of God's coming, they're now hiding in a bush. And so God says, man, Adam, where'd everybody go? Do we really think God didn't know where they were? Look at that poor God. I mean, he creates the universe and all, but he has no idea what just happened. I mean, my kids think that. They think they can get away with everything, stealing cookies out of the cookie jar, you know, sneaking and grabbing the M&Ms out of the thing. And I go, um, hey, Mary Elizabeth, did you take any M&Ms by chance? No. What are you talking about? I mean, of course I knew what she did. But I'm a good father, at least I pretend to be. Fake it till you make it. I tried to coax out that confession from her. I tried to get her to have some responsibility. And so God, in the foreshadowing of the confessional, the father comes to his children, meets them halfway. I mean... We should be on our hands and knees, crawling to God, begging for forgiveness for the sins that we commit even today. And what does he do? He meets us halfway in the priest. The confessional is mercy. It is not God's judgment. It is divine love. Because God knows you're fallen, and he desperately wants to raise you back up. He doesn't want to judge you. He wants to love you. So God the Father comes in the garden of the cool of the day, coaxes his children out of the bushes. What happened? Why are you hiding? Because I was naked, and I heard you coming, and so I hid. Um, who told you you were naked? I mean, I didn't put that memo out. What happened? Again, God knows. He's coaxing it. Notice what Adam does compared to what Eve does. Adam says, well, you know, God, um, it was that woman. That woman. She's the, the one to blame for all my... Wait, wait, wait. No, wait a minute, God. It was the woman that you gave me. You're responsible for my troubles. You gave me that woman. She gave me the fruit. I'm just a victim. Man. I should get some compensation or something. <laughs> he turns to the woman. What have you done? Notice what Eve says. 
I was beguiled and I ate. Where's the blame? Where's passing the buck? She had no one to defend herself. Adam stood by and did nothing like the coward he is. So of course she was beguiled. And of course she ate. Now she is not innocent. Don't get me wrong. She has a role. But brothers in Christ, the role first belongs to Adam to keep and protect. She would not have been in that situation if he had done his job. And she fell and so did he. So God hearing their confessions, gives them penance. The man, you now have sin. You now have a dead soul. When God said, you shall, the day you eat the fruit in the Garden of Eden, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die the death. God says it twice. Die the death. He repeats it in the Hebrew. Genesis 3, when the serpent says, surely you will not die. Satan only says it once. What's the difference? When God says it, he means your soul. When Satan says it, he means your flesh. Adam had a choice. He's faced with a seven-headed dragon who can kill him. He's got a choice. I could be eaten by a dragon, or I could eat the fruit and keep my flesh. Save your soul or save your flesh in a garden, by a tree, confronted by Satan. He allows his bride to do all the talking. He saves his flesh and blames everybody else. We don't know any men like that, right? We, we, none of us have blamed anybody else for our trouble. Good thing we're like the woman, right? Or are we like Adam. I know I am. It's a plague on mankind ever since. How many men do we know today have no integrity, who don't own up for the mistakes that they've made, who don't have the courage to say, I messed up, I committed a sin, God have mercy on me. Imagine what God could have done if all Adam said was, God have mercy on me. Maybe we wouldn't be here today. Maybe we wouldn't need to be. Maybe we wouldn't have a sinful nature passed on from one generation to the next. So the seven-headed dragon, as I like to call it, threatens them physically, and Adam chooses to save his flesh and forego his soul. So Adam's penance for his sins that he's now confessed would be to be cast out of the garden. He can no longer be in the beatitude of God. Brothers in Christ, where God is, there is heaven. At Mass, where were you? God was there, so where were we? In heaven, but it didn't look like heaven, and I was pretty sure those flies weren't angels. <laughs> I mean, they're winged, but I don't think they were like harp playing, and they certainly weren't friendly. But we were in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 makes that very, very clear. You have come to the heavenly Mount Zion, the ecclesia of the Lamb of God. Heaven and earth touch down. They meet at the Holy Mass. Where God is, there is heaven. There is the beatitude. 
Now, here on earth, it's imperfect. We can't see it with our human eyes. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We can't see that with our eyes because of our sinful nature, because we lack that spiritual maturity to be raised to that level. But look at the saints who have attained that spiritual uh, maturity. You see all kinds of miraculous things, bilocations, encounters with Our Lady and with our Lord. Why don't we see them? Because we are wallowing in our selfish desires and never moving past into the spiritual maturity that the church tries to give us. So Adam is cast out, and he now must work the soil. He must work the ground that he came from. The sweat of his face will drop and pour onto the ground as he labors to bring forth the bread to feed that family. To the thorns and the thistles, he is cast out. Now, the Targums, which is an ancient Jewish set of writings, they predated the time of Christ. They were running commentaries. In the, in the synagogues, after the Babylonian exile, most of the Palestinian Jews could not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which is very close, but not the same. The scrolls were always read in Hebrew, because they are Hebrew. So you'd have someone reading the scroll in Hebrew, and then you'd have someone narrating it into Aramaic. But he would add a little color commentary in there. And so they were running commentaries. Well, they wrote these down, and they're called the Targums. Now, the Targums are very, very fascinating. You can Google it. You can get them. You can go to my website and you know, link to them. They're awesome. You should read them. And the Targums, when Adam and Eve realize that they're both naked and now ashamed and they sow fig leaves, the Targums say they are stripped of the purple robe in which they are created. Hmm. Adam is stripped naked of the purple robe and sent to the thorns. Do we know anyone else in salvation history who may have been naked, may have had a purple robe, may have had a crown of thorns? There you go. Right here, foreshadowed on the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Eve's penance is she will bear children in great pain. But more, I think, significant for us as men is that her relationship with her husband will be forever strained. Since Satan attacks man and woman at their most vulnerable point, doesn't it make sense that from that point on, they will just be strained between man and woman? How many here have perfect marriages? Sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High five, Kenny. Yeah. Hey, what was your wife's phone number? I was just going to. No cell service. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get to you all day. <laughs> so we are living this experience. We are living this experience. Okay, what if you say, how many people here are single, not married at all? No single folks. Okay. If, you're sing if you know someone single, do you not think that they experienced this too? Before you were married, were your relationships perfect? No. Man and woman, we're always going to have frustration. It was not meant to be. It is as a result to the sinful choices that our first parents brought upon humanity. The Nahash, he gets penance too. He gets his 
his legs chopped off. The Targums actually say that, that they remove his legs, and he has to go crawling out of the garden. What does he do? He eats dust for the rest of his days. What is dust? What is man made out of? So the Nahash is eating what? He is consuming man. He is chasing you. He is consuming you. He is getting you off one degree. He's taking it, he's, you're giving him an inch and he's taking a mile. All the days. But then God gives us this beautiful promise. The day will come when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you read the seed of the woman, whoa, time, time out. Now, I have not read health and science today, but I know women don't have seeds. It is the man who gives the seed. So what is he saying? It is Mary's virginal conception of our Lord that will bring about the new Adam who will crush the head of the beast that consumes you. He will deliver you from this serpent. He's foreshadowing the day when this will all come to pass. Now we have a lot to get to before then. We have a lot of other covenant mediators to get to, a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and God is looking past all of it. Parting the seas of salvation history, if you will, and looking right at our Lord and saying, my son will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat death. He will reconstitute the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. And he will make right what they have made wrong. St. Paul actually ties this in with uh, Romans chapter 5. He says, as Death entered the world through Adam, so salvation enters the world through the last Adam. There's so much more I wish I could say. I would recommend sometime that you go through Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, and compare it to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 you'll find that they perfectly parallel one another. In fact, I have a talk where I actually do that. The father goes to penance with his children, one younger, one older. Adam is older, Eve, or yeah, Eve is younger. And so you'll see these parallels, which one has integrity, which one doesn't. It's profound. It is the proto-confessional. It is the foreshadowing of the sacrament of penance right there in the garden, because God loves his children. They were naked, right? And ashamed, right? What does God do as he's ushering his children out into the wilderness? He clothes them. He restores their dignity as sons and daughters of the Most High God. So is, his, is this his wrath we're seeing? Get out! No, this is his love. You can't be in this garden because you have sin on your heart and my love is an all-consuming fire. It will destroy you. Get out before it's too late. 
And so he places a cherubim, an angel, the very angel sent to protect them is now forcing them out. Hurry, move along before it's too late. With a fiery sword, he prevents them from coming in and eating from the fruit of the tree of life. Why? Because they will live forever in their sins and God wants to redeem them. He must exile them for their own sake. He loves them, so he clothes them. What does the father of the prodigal son do when his son comes and begs for slavery? Bring him a robe. Put shoes on his feet. Put a ring on his finger and kill the fattened calf because this is my son, not a slave. For he was lost and now he is found. What do you think is coming? This is the beginning. The end is so much more glorious. But you need to see God's love here. Not God's judgment. Not God's wrath. God is justice. He is hesed. He, he must ensure the covenant fidelity. Because of who God is, he must ensure it. So if you have broken the covenant, you must accept the curses. Every covenant has blessings and curses. You keep the covenant, you get the blessings. You break the covenant, you take the curses. We are going to see how those curses are finally taken. They're taken by the last Adam. I'll leave you with this. We see in Ezekiel chapter 28 how the sacred writer, inspired by God and the Holy Spirit, talks to a king, king, a king of Tyre, but talks to him as if he was Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is sort of intimate language, and it gives us an insight into the sin that Adam created. So I want you to listen to it. And forget about the king of Tyre part. Listen to it as if we're speaking to Adam himself. Chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel, starting in verse 11, quote, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of my perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. On the day that you, create, that you were created, they were prepared for you. With an anointed guardian, cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and the guardian cherub drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. The multitude of your iniquities... In the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought forth fire from the midst of you. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end, 
and shall be no more forever. Imagine what you have in Christ. Imagine what you lose in your sin. If you commit sin, you will be consumed by God's all love, love and fire. And you cannot cohabitate with God because he is all perfection. He is everything. You can't be with God in your sin. You must go to confession. You must confess your sins to the Father that God sends to you, that he might show his covenant love for you and restore your dignity as sons of the Most High God. The questions I would like you to ponder in your small groups are, how do you bear the image of God to your environments? Are you cultivating the wilderness into a garden sanctuary to bring others into dwell with God? How do you bring God to the world? How are you a prophet of God's image to mankind? And if you get past that one, here's another one. <laughs> Have you protected all those whom God has placed into your care and custody? Family, friends, children, parents, neighbors, those who cannot defend themselves from the least to the greatest, from the richest to the poorest? Are you Adam standing in the gap as priest, prophet, and king, offering yourself on the cross of Christ? It was him who said to you, take up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. Christ didn't get dragged to Calvary. He marched on Calvary. He conquered it. He is the king leading his army. Will we see you on the hill? Or will you be hiding in the bushes? <laughs>